Good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. So glad that you're here with us uh, this morning and um, grateful to be able to worship with you. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I do see a few of you uh, guests with us. We're so thankful that you're with us this morning. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church, and it's uh, just a joy to be able to be with you this morning and to open up um, this text. We are continuing in our study of the Sermon on the Mount um, found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And uh, we are nearing the end of chapter 5. We're almost there. If you've uh, been with us as uh, I, I reference a couple times in the past, this is our 16th message uh, uh, in this uh, chapter. So we've been working our way through this book. And if you are a guest with us, um, just know that's our practice is just to work our way through uh, books of the Bible, sections of the Bible as we're doing here this week. I do want to give a special shout out to um, Gary and Michelle who greeted you this morning in the rain, uh, in the cold. And so um, they definitely get the gold star of service for today. And we're so thankful for them. And um, as I think of that, I I do want to acknowledge again for any guests that this is a new property for our church, a new place of gathering for our church. And as we um, sort of make our way in, uh, you notice that some things are under construction. Also know that some of our processes and just how we welcome you and greet you are still, uh, we're working on learning that. And so one of the things that we are, are going to ask for some help in is specifically uh, in the area of parking. It's not so much an issue this morning in the rain where there are a few of you, but when we do have larger groups gathering with us. And so um, if you would be willing to serve and help uh, parking and get people in the door in that area, if I just ask uh, right now, just sort of this by way of announcement, to email Pastor Kyle. His email is kyle at citychurchmelissa.com. Uh, we would love it if you'd be willing to help in that area specifically um, to just assist the Pheasantbecks in welcoming you with uh, smiles and uh, really making sure that our guests and you, uh, all of us, are able to get in the door safely. As I said, we are working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. It's highly likely that you remember, we all probably, many of us can remember our mom telling us to turn the other cheek uh, when that punk in kindergarten was treating us poorly. And she offered that as wise advice of how we were supposed to deal with that challenge. And um, at the same time, as many of us can probably remember being told that that's what we were supposed to do in conflict or in dealing with that bully or whatever situation that we were facing in life, we can also remember how hard it was to live out mom's wisdom, to do what God had told us to do and to actually turn the other cheek to give in to whatever we were dealing with. I can remember hearing that myself, and I thought to myself, well, how the heck am I going to do that? If I turn the other cheek, he's just going to pummel me more. It was not going to go well. I didn't understand. This didn't make any sense. This wasn't real good advice, I felt like, from mom when she told me to turn the other cheek. And so, as we come to this text from Matthew chapter 5, Picking up in verse 38, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would, make, would sue you for, and, and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So Jesus gives us these words following as he's just, this is again, just we have to keep it in context of this entire sermon. And he gives us this very challenging, how do we possibly do this? How do we turn the other cheek? 
Well, as we think about this text, the first thing we must do is put it in context with the rest of this sermon. We have to remember that Jesus has said that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's where he began in a sense. He told us he defined what it means to be a Christian in the Beatitudes. And then he said, this is what I have made you to be. I have made you to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. This is who you are. And we have to remember that because God has a purpose in doing what he has done. God has a purpose in calling us to be his people. Of course, as we are called his people, as we this morning get to worship together and enjoy Christian fellowship, we understand that being a Christian is for our good. We understand the fruit of being a Christian, the ultimate, the eternal gift that comes along with that. And so, yes, all of those things are good. But we have to first remember that while it is very much for our good, as we just sang, what God was doing, what he was accomplishing was mostly about himself getting glory. That he would receive glory from our lives. So we're called to be his people. To be a people who see the world and act in the world differently, radically differently than anyone else in the world. Because we're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And when we live and act in accordance with what God has called us to do. How God has called us to live. He is glorified. And so we come to this text of understanding and this idea and when of course just because of most of us in the upbringing we think if someone does wrong we simplify it in this way if someone wrongs us then we just sort of let them get away with it we turn the other cheek and let them continue to wrong us and in some senses that is what jesus was saying but i hope that as we unpack this we might have a better understanding of really what that looks like how mom's advice was good and how we can actually live it out successfully with joy and even ultimately to the glory of God. So as we've done, Jesus at the beginning of each of these statements, following his declaration that we are the salt of the earth, we are the light of the world, this is who I created you to be, for a purpose of preserving the world from the decay and death, and to push back against the darkness of this world, he says, you have heard that it was said. He's dealing with what he is saying, his teaching, his life, his calling for his people, this new kingdom of God that he has established, how it interacts with the Old Testament law. And Jesus is going sort of point by point, and he's picking and choosing from various pieces of the law, and he does that very purposefully, as we've said. Here he arrives at this, this text, and he says, You have heard that it was said, The Pharisees have said, This is what we should do. This is how we are to live. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now this particular law was found, is from the law, was found in Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy and all the typical places where God gave the law in the Old Testament. And so the Pharisees were quoting that. And they had spoken that and had taught. But once again, as Jesus has done in each case, he has shown us the Pharisees have taught you the letter of the law. But they have not taught you the heart of the law. And I have come, in a sense, to show you why God said this. Why did God give this law? And ultimately, as people of Christ, Christians, how are we to live with this? So if we go back to the Old Testament, the first reason, why did God say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? That sounds a little bit vengeful. Sounds a little bit not like the God that, of course, we want to talk about in culture today the God of love and God of celebrating all things. This sounds like a God that I don't really think. This is the, this is the area sometimes people read this law and think, 
that, is that a God worth worshiping? And it's because they miss the sinfulness of man. One of the things that we understand as we read this law and we understand this law is that it is ultimately a law of grace. It is not a law of vengeance. This isn't God teaching us to retaliate. He has actually given us a law that sort of holds us back from what we would ultimately do because God knows our sinfulness. Let me just ask it this way. Does an appetite for revenge Is that something that we have to feed, that we have to sort of foster up, sort of if when things go wrong, our desire for revenge, is that something we have to cook up in our souls or does that come quite easily to us? My suggestion is that it comes quite easily. Look at children. One kid takes a block and little brother yells mine and is ready to go to war against him to murder his brother over this little block that was taken. Or your boss doesn't recognize you for the work that you've done. And in your heart, how do you feel? Revenge. You want to retaliate. That's the sinfulness of our heart, friends. That's what we all deal with. And so this law was given, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The reason God gave this law is he knew that that was the way that we retaliate. He knew that if one person harms another, the retaliation is going to be much worse than the harm that was initially done, because that's the sinfulness of the human heart. And so this law is a law of constraint. It's a law, it's actually God's grace. It's his common grace to his people. In the Old Testament, they were told, when someone wrongs you, you don't get to kill them. You don't get to go to war with them. You have a proper response. If they take out your eye, you take their eye. If they harm you in some way, there is a punishment that is dealt with that, in in a sense, the punishment will fit the crime. You couldn't kill someone if they stole from you. You could take back what was stolen or take something of commensurate value. This was the law. This is why God gave the law. Again, to constrain the sinfulness of the human heart that would have retaliated much more strongly. The other thing that we have to understand, and when we think of this law, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Again, that law was given. It's a law of constraint, but it was also given as a law within a community of people. This wasn't the personal interactions. Again, we so often miss this. This wasn't something where it says, because you have wronged me, I now come against you with this equal and commensurate wrong, or I retaliate in this way. No, what was done is you went before a judge, and the judge would apply this law for the community of people. And the judge, of course, was someone that was an outsider to the actual harm that was done, was a third party in a sense, and was also someone that was considered wise. And so this wasn't a personal thing. Again, if somebody harmed you, you went to the judge, and the judge would deal with this. Well... That's what was happening. That's when God gave the law, what he intended it to do, why he gave us the law. As a law of common grace to protect his people to, in a sense, prevent the world from unraveling. Because if everybody did not hold back and was not constrained by this law, one wrong is done, retaliation, another wrong, and you can imagine the whole community is dissolved within days probably, if not sooner, hours So, 
The Pharisees had taught this, and they had said, you have heard that it was said, this is what it was do- had done. And they, once again, they could quote the letter of the law, but they missed the heart of the law. Because they focused on this idea of this retaliation. The two ways that they had most commonly messed this up was, they first, they made this a personal thing. So rather than going to the judge and it being something that was dealt with by a judge, by a third party and handled appropriately, they had made it something that if you were wrong, you personally went and got your own sort of recompense. If they stole from you, you went and stole from them. If they took out your eye, you went and took out their eye. If they took out your tooth, you went and took out their tooth. However you were harmed, you went and did this personally. The other thing that they did is that they had missed that this was a law that was to limit the excessiveness of the sinful hearts, not something that had to be mandated. And so they had taught that essentially, if you were harmed, the law required that you go and seek some sort of revenge. If you are harmed in this way, you must go and get equal return. If they take your eye, you have to go and take the eye of the offending party. So Jesus, interacting with this understanding of the law, how the Pharisees had taught this, the religious leaders of the day had, in a sense, pushed this upon the people, he comes to us and says, let me teach you the heart of this law. And just as he'd done in the previous topics where he dealt with murder or adultery, divorce and otherwise, he shows us and he shows his disciples how the letter of the law was to be expanded and ultimately to be viewed to understand the heart of the law, the heart of God. And so Jesus shows if you murder, it's not that you would be getting away with murder. No, it's even if you have been angry, you have sinned. You think, oh, I've not done adultery. It's not even if you've committed adultery, but even if you look upon another person with lust. You know not to take the Lord's name in vain or make false promises. Jesus says, don't even make promises. Just say yes or no and let your word be your word. And so in all of these things, we receive or we understand Jesus is giving a picture to his people, a picture of grace. And this is ultimately the whole point of this teaching. As we talk about these issues that Jesus has raised, he is doing so and he's dealing with these issues. He's teaching his people the heart of the God and the heart of God is a heart of grace. This isn't some new law. The Sermon on the Mount, all that we have unpacked thus far, is not a new law that we are to follow that replaces the Old Testament law. Do this, do that, don't do that, don't do this. Don't even be angry. No, he's showing us our need for grace and how the law shows us that. And he also is teaching us that this isn't something to be replaced or to, again, replace the Old Testament law, but showing us how God's grace works in real life. If we understood God's heart, this is what it looks like to live as his people. So don't come to the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, and look for a list of rules. I know we have these subheadings all throughout that sort of make us think as we're flipping through our Bibles. I want to know what I'm supposed to do in this area. I want to know what I'm supposed to do in this area. And that that turns the Sermon on the Mount into this list of rules. And we miss, just as the Pharisees did, we miss the heart of God. We miss what Jesus is doing. See, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching us. How God has set apart for himself a people and how those people are to live their lives as salt and light, to be grace givers rather than law givers.
This is why, by the way, so often in our common day, think of this. We don't have Pharisees, per se. We don't have the same things. But what do we often hear in pushback as we have conversations with our friends and neighbors about faith or we talk to them about the church or all the things that we're involved in? I'm not real religious. I'm a spiritual person, but I don't have a lot of room for the church. I don't want to really get involved with the religion. I don't like religion. That's some of the common things. Why? Because for too long, the church has taken the New Testament, made it a law to be lived in the same way the Old Testament law was called to be lived out. And we've missed the whole heart of God in this thing. And we don't offer the world a picture of salt and light. And so Jesus was confronting then what I hope he's confronting even now in our own hearts. This desire to live under the law, to just tell me what to do, God, and I will do just that. To make myself righteous when we need to realize, as the Beatitudes describe for us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because we can't find it from within. We have to look outside of ourselves for a righteousness that we don't possess. If we could adhere to a law in order to make ourselves right with God, why would God have ever need to send Jesus at all? We realize that's not the case. We can't do that. He sent Christ because... We aren't to live under the law, and we all need the grace of God. So, with all of that in mind, as far as what Jesus was dealing with, what he was confronting, and why he's speaking in this way, we come again to this text, go back, and how are we to deal with this this call? I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, this statement of Jesus is, quite controversial. It's one throughout history that has been challenged and dealt with. When Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil, what does he mean? One of the arguments that has been attempted to be made from this text is an argument for pacifism, that God's people, Christians, should not ever engage in any confrontation of evil. That, by the way, is expounded upon. Some teachers would say, we need no military, we need no police, we need no law, none of those things. We should just sit back and allow the world to do whatever the world is going to do. And as Christians, we don't ever confront evil. That is a teaching of history, sort of throughout history. This text has been used to try and propagate that idea. But here again, this is missing the point. The problem with that is that it's taking Jesus' words in this moment literally which Jesus doesn't intend to do here. Now, we don't have time in this setting. We have another service that follows, and you all want to go eat something, I'm quite sure. So we don't have time to do an entire message on biblical interpretation and how we interpret the Bible. But I hope as we have been together, some of us for many years now, part of what we have learned and and our understanding is that we don't always, the Bible and its speakers and the authors, we have to understand what they were saying to their original hearers. What what was the writer of this book? What was Matthew saying? And ultimately here, what was Jesus saying to those disciples that were gathered on a mountainside? He, in that moment, was not speaking literally. Now, all of God's word is true. It is uh, sufficient in all of those things. We don't diminish God's word by saying that. We just say we take God's word and we understand how it was said, what was being said to the original hearers before we try to apply it to our own lives. When we get that backwards, we get a mess. 
One of the reasons that we know that Jesus didn't mean literally do not ever confront evil is because he himself confronted evil in other places in Scripture. And so we use Scripture to sort of help us to interpret other places of Scripture. Where there's confusion, we look to other places in Scripture to understand these things. The other idea, if we look at these words and we took them literally, this would lead us to doing something that is ultimately impossible. And God's word never directs us to do something that's not possible. We have to understand God's word leads us to something that through the strength of Christ we could actually accomplish. So, the argument that this should be taken literally, and that's once again, that's in a sense becoming a new law. That's taking this and saying, the law says... Don't return evil for evil. Don't even deal with evil. And that misses the heart of what God is saying. So to understand why Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil, we have to remember that this, again, is a single sermon. Jesus is speaking to people who he has already described in the Beatitudes as Christians. So this is specifically speaking to Christians. This is not a word. This message is not delivered to an unbelieving people. These are people, Jesus has already said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who have acknowledged their complete uh, destituteness, their need in spiritual sense. And when we understand our poverty in spirit, we turn to Christ and we receive entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn their sin, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, those in humility humble themselves before God. This is who Jesus is speaking to. I've already quoted the, uh, the, the beatitude on righteousness. This is who Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to Christians. Jesus is also, in this case, speaking to people. Individuals, just like you and I. Yes, we're gathered together in a community here in the same way, gathered on the hillside. Jesus' disciples were gathered in a community. But he was speaking to them as individuals on how to live their lives. This wasn't speaking to nations. Again, this text often interpreted as we shouldn't confront evil and a call for pacifism is something that is done when speaking to nations. That's not what Jesus is dealing with here. He isn't saying we shouldn't go to war because of this statement. Or we shouldn't deal with these issues or that. Now Jesus isn't speaking to the UN. He is speaking to disciples. His people. So Jesus speaking to Christians who he had described in the Beatitudes and given a purpose of being salty and lit. He gives us this responsibility, this calling to how we deal with evil in the world. What we understand is this is an impossible task, by the way, for the non-Christian. It is impossible to see evil and not deal with evil immediately for anyone who has not received the new heart of Christ, has the Holy Spirit at work in them. This, by the way, is also impossible for a nation to do. Nations would not exist if there wasn't some form of confrontation of evil. This is something that we deal with personally. This is what Jesus is giving us instruction. When we see evil, how do we deal with it? By the way, this is again why God gave the law. The common restraint, the common grace of restraint. So for people who aren't Christians, by the way, they live under that law in a sense. Just don't repay evil more than evil should be repaid for. And that's what Jesus would say. 
what God's the law would say. But for us who are under Christ, who have been given new life in Christ, who understand the grace of Christ, we have the possibility to see evil and to turn the other cheek, to deal with it differently. Now, if Jesus is not saying this is a call to pacifism, you might be asking yourself, well, what exactly is Jesus saying? You've told me a lot about what he's not saying, about what he is dealing with here, but what is he saying here? Well, first he is teaching us that this applies to our personal relationships, who you and I interact with on a daily basis. It applies to me and my relationships, and then it applies to you and your relationships. I don't come and intervene on your behalf, and you can't intervene on my behalf in these things. This is how we are to deal with individuals, people that we relate to, how we live. This is how I interact with those people around me. And the first thing that he is saying is that Jesus, or he is acknowledging, is that evil is real. That's one of the things that our culture, by the way, does not want to acknowledge, right? That evil actually exists. Now, I know right now there's a lot of things being called evil, especially in our political circumstances. The far left is evil and the far right is evil and somewhere in between there's something in the middle. I don't know what that is, but everybody, it seems, in this day and age is evil for something or another. And so Jesus is acknowledging, though, that evil is real. He says, do not resist the one who is evil. And so... Whereas so many of us might want to think, well, I don't really think that's evil. I don't don't want to call anything evil. I don't want to deal with sin. I don't want to call sin what it is. Some in the culture would like to do that. Jesus is acknowledging that evil is a real thing because he says that the evil one is going to come against us. And I'm not speaking there of Satan. I'm talking about evil that manifests itself through other human beings. We need to realize the devil, hell, Evil. Those are all very real things. And as we realize that this is something that we have to deal with, that it is real, then we must understand how as Christians do we maintain our calling to be salt and light in the midst of all of this evil. By the way, you want to know how we know evil is real? Because how often it creeps up in our own hearts. We're not to murder. Yeah, don't even be angry. Don't commit adultery. Yeah, don't even lust. Don't even look upon another believing that that is something that you should have that God didn't intend to give you. Don't swear on this or that. Just let your yes be yes. How hard is that for us to do? Evil manifests itself in our own hearts. And so knowing that evil is real, one of the things that we must do is we have to look at ourselves first. We have to realize that Jesus has said that we are set apart to offer the world something radical. Not just don't retaliate. That's pretty simple to do, honestly. How often have we made it through our day? Evil coming against us, bad things said about us, something not going right at work, somebody dealing with something in the wrong way, whatever might happen. And we at least constrain ourselves to not go punch that person in the face. We can do that. We can hold ourselves back from that. But to just show grace to them, to allow them to continue to do that, that's radical, friends. That's very different than the way the world operates. A common man 
can withstrain himself from punching someone in the face because why? The common grace of God has given us a law that says if you punch someone in the face, you're going to go to jail. So in God's goodness, he holds us back from ourselves. But for the Christian that is salt and light and lives in the world completely differently than anybody else in the world, we don't just not punch somebody in the face for it or kick back or push back or do whatever it is that we think we might want to do or even deserve to do. We actually show the the offending party grace and offer them the other cheek to do it again. That's radical. That's living in the world completely differently than anyone else. And this is what Jesus has called us to do. And this is why, by the way, only Christians can do this. Only people who can say, blessed are the meek. Only people who have been humbled before God in such a way that they understand, we understand, our inheritance is not in this world. We've already received everything that we need to receive from God. And we have a future that is for us that we cannot ever compare against. Could we live in this world in such a way that says, I don't need to get back what you took from me. I don't need to retaliate in such a way to get something from you. Only the Christian can do that. Because only the Christian understands What it means to receive from Christ. And we get to the point of what Jesus is really getting at here. As we think about that idea of retaliation and getting back. We understand that what Jesus is teaching us here. The radical teaching of turning the other cheek. Or if someone sues you to give them the the cloak as well as the tunic. Or if they ask you to go one mile for you to go two miles. That radical teaching is a teaching that says Christians think of themselves less. We put ourselves behind others. Secondary to the rest of the world. We no longer think in terms of what we are owed. We no longer think in terms of what we are worth. We now see ourselves as someone who has not received the wrath of God that we know we deserve. Because again, just go back to that point when I asked you, do you ever have evil in your heart? We understand that we have not received that wrath. And because we haven't, and we haven't received that wrath because of Christ's mercy towards us. And so we show a world, we show the world a picture of the gospel where wrath and anger should be the response to what is done to us, where retaliation is deserved, even rightly, what do we show the world? We extend grace. And when the world sees that, they are confronted. In their own sinful hearts, they say, that is not how I would handle that situation. That is not how I would have dealt with that problem. That is not how I would have pushed back or solved that. Something is wrong there. Something is strange there. And that strangeness, guess what that makes us? Salt and light. Do you ever stick your finger in the salt jar and taste it? Salt by itself, by the way, doesn't taste very good. It's only when the salt is applied to whatever it is that we're doing, when it's applied to the meat, when it's mixed in with whatever we're cooking, then the saltiness comes into sort of its fullness. In the same way, when we live out this calling on our lives to show grace where the world would not, that salt is applied and the world says, taste and see that God must be good. Only by God's grace would someone act in the way that that person has acted. And this is why Jesus in verse 42 
he takes this left turn. He says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. He's been talking about retaliation. He's been saying, if they ask for the tunic, you give them the cloak. If you go a mile, go a second mile. If they slap your cheek, give them the other cheek. This sort of one for one. Here he sort of just goes completely left turn. Not, no matter what, if they just ask anything of you, just give to them. How would that be possible? Only because we think of ourselves less. Being a Christian, being salt and light, this is what it means. Jesus, in telling us to give to the one who would borrow, he gets to the heart of our own desires for ourselves, to protect ourselves. My sons drive, and they often ask to borrow my car, which is never allowed. And the reason that they're not allowed to borrow my car, whereas you would be allowed to borrow my car, is because if they destroy it, which they probably will... I have no one to retaliate against. There's no insurance I can file against someone else. It's going to come back on me. If you borrow my car, I know that if you mess it up, I'm going to get paid. It's going to be taken care of. You see the sinfulness of my heart in that? Only will I let someone borrow if I know that I'll be taken care of if something gets messed up. The heart of Christ is that we give of our lives completely selflessly, never worrying about what we might receive in return. That we would lay down our lives. And ultimately, we look to Jesus for this. Because Jesus is the only one who ever did this perfectly. Jesus says, in Philippians chapter 2, it's said of Jesus. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy of being, in the, of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. This is what we are the church to be. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but the interests of others. And here's where Jesus did it perfectly. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not look to God and say, I need to hold on to my power, my holiness, my victory over all these things. I lay down all of those things in humility, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, which we celebrate at Christmas, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what Jesus did for us. He lived out this calling of turning the other cheek, of giving the extra item, going the extra mile. When we understand this, we realize that we are evil. We are the reason that Jesus went to the cross. And Jesus, knowing that, didn't strike us down in response. He laid down his life for us. It was our sin that nailed him to the cross. He didn't respond by killing us. He extended us eternal life. Many years, we, many of us, might walk in sin. And Jesus patiently walks with us, showing us grace upon grace all along the way. This is what Jesus did. This is the gospel. And this is what we are called to live out. 
Let us be people who live out the gospel in a radical way. I close with this quote from Pastor Stephen Lawson. The gospel must appear to be foolishness to the unconverted, the people who don't know Christ, or it's not the gospel. Do our lives reflect the foolishness of the gospel? Radical obedience to live with ourselves less in mind and lifting up the glory of Christ in all things. Let's pray and ask Jesus to help us to live to that end. Lord Jesus, we thank you as we just heard from our brother Paul expounding upon who you are, what you did. You lived your teaching perfectly. I expect you knew fully when you said these words to turn the other cheek, to give graciously to go the extra mile with those who would harm and offend us, that you had the cross in mind, knowing that you would do that very thing. So, Jesus, we pray. We plead with you. Help us to be like you. Holy Spirit, fill us with your power. Give us the humility. Give us a picture of your grace in our lives that's so just confounds us and confronts us that we can do nothing else but live for you. Would you just compel us as we look to you, Jesus, to live with others ahead of ourselves, to truly consider others, even those others who we view as evil, who are executing evil, doing things that are against your word. Help us to not feel as if we are the people that must bring condemnation or attack but can just live as you would live, laying down your life. For us, we now get to be a picture of laying down our life for them. Help us to do that, Lord Jesus, we pray. We know that that is hard. We trust and we believe that it is ultimately for our good. And more importantly, we know that it is for your glory. Holy Spirit, help us all to be a people who live for your glory alone. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, I'd love an opportunity to meet you, to pray with you. If we haven't had a chance to do that, I'd say this every week. But just so you know, our elders, I'll be down front. And a few of our elders will be down front as well. We'd love an opportunity to just encourage you and pray with you um, over anything. Perhaps you've been confronted with evil and you need God's grace this week to help you push back to sort of deal with that in a Christ-honoring way. We'd love a chance to minister to you in that way. Um, Also, before we dismiss, I want to just make you aware of two things on our calendar for this evening. The first is our hope service. You, I hope you have heard of our hope service and know of this, but tonight at five o'clock, we'll gather together in this room. And um, this service is specifically intended for anyone who's experienced grief um, and has found the holiday season where everybody is walking around with smile and joy on their face and bright lights everywhere and yet there's a dimness in your soul because you're missing someone whether that's a death this year or years past a miscarriage a challenging situation in your family I don't know what circumstances might cause that but we do know that Jesus offers us hope in the darkest of those moments and so we uh, just established this service a few years back specifically to minister to those who might be experiencing um, some hardship just some grief in the 
the midst of the joy of this season. So would invite you to come. Um, that might be a place, by the way, that would, you could invite a neighbor. You know your neighbor has been struggling with the Lord, just been struggling to live um, through because of some circumstance in their life. Um, invite them to come, and you can just be the person that would sit beside them and pray with them and encourage them, um, just as Christ gives uh, encourages us all. So please join us this evening at 5 o'clock for our hope service. And then immediately following that, at 6.30, so you may stick around for this, or it may be something that you come to one or the other. Uh, we'll have a re-engage open group this evening. Re-engage is our marriage ministry, and uh, I've testified to you over and over again how much Laurel and I love this ministry. We went through uh, the closed group session one semester of this, but um, this tonight, and we've been doing these, um, the open groups are just sort of standalone. So whether you've been to 27 of them before, or it's your first time, you can just show up with your spouse, come to this, and uh, just be encouraged in your marriage. It's a, it's a fun evening together, um, but it's also a time where we can just grow together as husbands and wives. And so um, that's just something that we need to continually do as married people. And so uh, I want to encourage you to come back again this evening at 6.30 p.m. for our Reengage Open Group. Nothing else. We'll see you back this evening. Thanks so much, guys. Love you. We'll have uh, y'all have a great week. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we look forward to seeing you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.